Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. May 30th, 2022, episode 212, Under the Weather. Hello, one and all. Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast for Hobbyist Beekeepers. I'm Kevin England. If you cannot tell, it will become evident that I am, as the title suggests, a little under the weather. I'm nursing a bad cold, stuffy head, possible sinus infection, fever, and the like, but thus far, I have not tested positive for COVID, so there's that. Given how bad I feel on this Memorial Day weekend, I'm a bit disappointed that I do not have the ump to be out in the sunshine working the bees. And so here I am doing the next best thing, trying to salvage something of the weekend. Before I go on, I'll take a moment to recognize that this is Memorial Day weekend. Today is Memorial Day. And I want to express my gratitude to the men and women of our armed services that have given their lives for our freedoms. I find war and conflict grotesque in every sense of the words. And I think about my nephew David, who leaves this week for boot camp, as he's joined the Navy and is heading out to basic training. It's an incredible step in anyone's life to know that you will serve your country and possibly lay your life on the line in defense of our freedoms and democracy. Bless our active service people and a solemn, heartfelt remembrance to those who have made the ultimate sacrifice for our great nation. In this week's show, I'm going to be circling around a bunch of unrelated topics. I kind of like this type of episode that has the random things. For I find that the mixed bag of topics interesting as a collective whenever I listen back to the show. For roundtable number one, I have an update on the resubmission of honey exemption within the New Jersey cottage laws. Roundtable number two is us exploring the temporal polyethism that makes the connection to the capability of a hive building honeycomb. Roundtable number three, an old-fashioned notion for keeping insects from taking up residence in your porch ceilings and woodenware. Number four, this go-round is about maintenance of your smoker and specifically dealing with creosote if that seems to be a problem for you. For the final roundtable in this episode, I'm going to give you my report card on the presence of Russian bees in my apiary, impressions of the experience in hosting them, and my year in the apiary recount of what's been like. Given that I'm a bit under the weather, I think that's going to be quite a chore to pull off, and as such, I'm going to fall back on something that makes me smile to bring us home in this episode. I had the pleasure recently of going to a beekeeping meeting with Bob Kloss and decided to throw a lavalier microphone on him and record our banter going to and from the meeting, I'm going to bring that conversation where we just simply chatted about things going on and got caught up with each other's beekeeping activities to close out the show. I should mention that Bob was the featured speaker that night for the RVBA meeting and spoke on apotherapy. did a great job on the topic, and I especially liked that he had a few things in the presentation that I was not aware of even though I've seen quite a few presentations on the topic. Goes to show that you will always pick something up if you remain an active participant in the world. I'll jump in with the local hive report 
to the end of the show, as is customary, and cold notwithstanding, let's see how this goes. I suspect there's going to be a bit of editing on my part, so you don't hear me coughing and spitting and spewing, and so perhaps the release will be delayed a bit, because, well, I feel under the weather, and I'm not sure that I could dedicate myself to the task of editing, but alas, the show must go on, so let's head to roundtable number one. Roundtable number one, one step closer. New Jersey's passed Bill A-3991, passed by the Assembly. It says, in part, honey that is raw and has not been processed, infused, pasteurized, or otherwise modified or combined with any other food product shall not be deemed to be a cottage food product. So this is the latest salvo in trying to right the world with making honey a pure natural product, not something that needs to be controlled. And if you've been following the program, you know that the original assembly and Senate bill that was sent to the governor got vetoed here in New Jersey. And currently, the cottage laws do oversee honey. They want to rectify that and remove it. You catch here that it's just pure honey, not honey with mix-ins or any other permutations. The next step is on to the Senate, Bill S-2697, which is identical to the bill we just talked about, was introduced into the Senate. It's referred to the Senate Health, Human Services, and Senior Citizens Committee. Why they get to oversee it, I don't know. And if it's approved by that Senate committee, it'll go to the full Senate for the vote and presumably to the governor for weighing in on this. Uh, New Jersey Beekeepers Association has a small committee that is overseeing this activity and working with legislators to try and get it through. And they sent a note out just prior to it going to assembly asking beekeepers to write in support of it. I assume the same thing will occur when it comes to the Senate reviews and we'll see what happens when it gets to the governor's desk this time. That's the latest update on cottage law over overburden for parents on natural honey here in New Jersey and we'll keep you posted as this progresses through maybe the second time is the charm we'll have to see roundtable number two called us one of the days of the bees I speak of a biology driven approach to beekeeping this really shines this time of year when it comes to a key activity in honeybee nest management building comb There are certain factors that have come together for this to work, meaning building comb. It has to be the proper food for the bees, temperatures, and specifically one key ingredient in the recipe is the activated wax glands. If you extrapolate on this point, worker bees, being well-fed, will, in their course of development, develop their wax glands and be capable of drawing comb. This is one step further in order for the bees to reach that age bracket the colony needs to be making bees. Spring and fall are two places where we might want them to make comb, both for drawing comb out for use in the colony and for capping wax. Diving even further down, there are jobs that need to be done, and there are a certain percentage of bees in any given time that are capable of doing the task at hand. To illustrate that further, when bees are in the height of spring and you need comb drawn, the colony size can be up to 50,000 bees, and more or less, 
If you think of the available workforce, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of bees that are the right age and exhibiting the right form of development to draw wax. Coming out of summer, in contrast with the queen cutting back during the dearth and the task at hand of capping honey for winter, there are fewer bees in the overall colony, and certainly not dozens and dozens and dozens of bees to do that job. Net-net, I think you could see that the condition changes, you know, the complex comb building potential, and knowing the factors in play help you understand the right times to consider different management activities, like getting drawn comb in your colony. Coming back to the baseline, what I had hoped to do is give you a sense of bee timing based on development. Smack dab in the middle of this run-through will be the development of wax glands, which enables the activities we just spoke of. Why talk about this now? Well, because I had it wrong. Recently, I was talking about this and mentioned the timeline for when the bee's wax glands developed, and I was off by a number of days. Someone pointed that out to me that they had heard things differently. And upon digging in, I'm trying to reset my understanding of this critical timeline so I'm more accurate in my way of thinking. This turns me to Winston's work. What I am going to cite from is the work of Mark Winston and documented in the book, The Biology of the Honeybee. It should be noted that what we are talking about is the concept of polyethism in honeybees, or more specifically, temporal polyethism. A review of what that means, worker honeybees subscribe to temporal polyethism or time-related behaviors. Temporal refers or infers to many. Polyethism is a nod to behaviors. We could translate this temporary behaviors or said in plain speak, the bees will perform specific tasks based upon how old they are, and in this case, the dynamic and measured in days. So let's walk through it and note that this is a generalization of time frames based on a chart I saw on page 83 in that book and interpreted. And things are often stated in a range. So there's a range and then there's the most common day noted when the activity occurs. Yeah, you'll get it in a second. Winston broke these down into the stages with the first being cleaning cells and capping brood. On day one to day eight, bees are cleaning cells and taking food. I know that they harden off after they emerge. The most common day it occurs, meaning cleaning cells and capping brood, is day number six. So range one to eight, most common day, day six. Day two to eight is capping brood. Day five is the main marker. Day six to day 15 the new bees will be tending brood, day 10 being the average. So if we think about it, the most common day for bees cleaning cells is six days of life, capping brood is five days of life, tending brood is 10 days of life. Other things that they do in this time period is attending to the queen with a range of day four to day 15 with 11 being the mean, Receiving nectar from the outside. Day 12 is the day. Range being 10 to 17. Cleaning debris. Around the hive, out of the cells and such. Somewhat similar to the previous one. Starts on day 8. Ends day 21. 
but the mean is the same as receiving nectar at day 12. Packing pollen. The last one that matches this time frame is packing pollen. Here again, we start on day 8. The mean is once again day 12. But the end is just short of day 20. So they stay into that quite deeply into the time frame. So during that time period, tending the queen, day 11, receiving nectar, cleaning debris, packing pollen, day 12 are the averages. There's one more in this grouping, which is comb building, the one I was interested in. Now we get to the one that I wanted to learn the correction for, building comb. The start of it is day 12, which means day 17 is the middle and day 22 is the end. It's later than I thought. For some reason, I just had it in my mind, blueprint, that it was day 6 that they started this, with the mean being day 12. It's actually shifted to the right some. So from days 12 to 22, bees have developed wax glands and create, can create comb. This gives us a good benchmark to consider. When we see carpets of brood, the bees that emerge will become viable for building comb in a period of just shy of two weeks. Lock that in. That's an important thing for you. If you started a new colony, put a new queen in there, the new queen capped off all this brood, two weeks from then, those bees will be able to make wax. And if you have it, say, in a nuke, you can add frames of foundation and they'll start building that out for you. Think about it when you put a swarm in a box, made a queen, you can gauge just about when the bees will be able to draw comb. And every time you see carpets of brood, you know the promissory note is in two weeks, you'll have some bees with the right conditions that will be able to draw comb for you. Now, there are a few other tasks, of course, that bees do. And for a complete list, let's just jot off three more. Ventilating the hive. High ventilation starts around day 14. Average is day 17, short duration on this one, no longer than day 22. When you think about the final two tasks, guarding and foraging, you know that often a bee becomes a guard, and then at some point, being at the front entrance is pressed into service. The range starts at day 14 and runs to day 28. And according to Winston, the most common day that a bee will likely be guarding the hive is just short of day 20 in their life. Last up, but obviously a most important task, is the service of being a forager bee. Winston sets the range from 18 days to 28 days, and in that 10-day window, the most prevalent day that a bee becomes a forager is day 23, maybe 24. It's right on the line. Now, I had read in other books that the average day was day 21 for a bee to become a forager. This number always sticks with me because it takes 21 days for a bee to emerge, and then 21 days more for them to age out to be a forager. I think that's close enough and easier to remember. Now, I recognize it's not the most enthralling thing to run down, but there are some important asides. If you want to understand when, in the example I just used a moment ago, when bees might draw a comb for you, well, then this is an important factoid to be considered. 
It also tells you from a biology-driven approach, it's awful difficult of you to anticipate that the bees will draw comb later in the year when the queen's not rearing new brood for you. It's simple biology. You need new bees that reach that age of 12. And if that's not happening in August, don't put foundation in your hives and anticipate that they're going to draw it out for you. Roundtable number three, I call this one, I'm Mr. Blue. One of the more common questions I get from regular people is about wasps, carpenter bees, and critters that take up residence in buildings. I think I had a half dozen of them just last week when people at work who I talk to on conference calls and such know that I'm a beekeeper and remind me that they see this bug that got inside the house and they want me to identify it. I think last week I saw a picture of a European hornet sent to me over Teams. Uh, someone texted me a picture of a yellow jacket queen. Uh, it reminds me of another thing. The other day I stood in the driveway of my nephew's house and a carpenter bee was buzzing in my face. Good old carpenter bees. All show, no go, but menacing nonetheless. Uh, Kevin moment. The all show no-go secret with carpenter bees is there most likely bees buzzing in your face with no stinger they're the males you could tell it's a male because they usually have a dot on their forehead and the females are actually busy rearing brood and working in the nest it's a fun thing to encounter when you know they don't have a stinger uh, carpenter bee buzzing in your face they will literally fly two to three inches and stop in flight and you could look at them yeah it's kind of cool reminds me of moment in films i'm trying to think if it was yes yeah, is one of those kevin live tourette's moments uh, i think it was mocking jay one of those hunger game films anyway end of kevin moment all show no go so yeah you'll get the questions there's an interesting aside in history about how to solve this and specifically people are often worried about the bees building into their homes and if you happen to own a home with a large beautiful you know uh, deck chairs and such uh, rockers on the front porch how do you keep the bees from boring holes in your ceiling and nesting in the corners and things like that you have to painted ceiling sky blue that's how you solve it isn't that an interesting backstory the act there's an actual color that you paint the ceiling it's called haint blue h-a-i-n-t haint blue you could physically buy that from like sherwin williams what does haint mean from wikipedia the word haint is an alternative spelling of haunt which was historically used in African-American vernacular to refer to a ghost or, in the hoodoo belief, a witch-like creature seeking to chase victims to their death by exhaustion. That is literally a quote from Wikipedia. It goes on further to say, originally, haint blue was thought by the Gullah to ward haints or ghosts away from the home. The tactic was intended to either mimic the appearance of the sky 
tricking the ghost into passing through, or mimic the appearance of water which ghosts traditionally could not cross. Now this is interesting in its own right, but I'll take the notion in a different direction. Wisdom says that insects will try to nest under a ceiling on a porch, under eaves, under other windows and such. But if you paint them haint blue, which is a cross between like a sky blue, little bit of, hmm, I don't know. When you see the pictures of houses painted with this, it's a sky blue. It has a little bit of jade color to it and such. Um, it fools them. How could you build a nest on the sky? You can't do that. So it is said that if you wanted to keep your porch bug free, you would paint the ceiling and the eaves and under your windows and other things this haint blue. And apparently this is a thing down in the south, back to even the 1800s. You'll find old manor houses painted with blue ceilings. It's kind of cool because if you look at the houses, they have a certain old world charm to them with this blue ceiling paint. Now there's other schools of thought about this in that the old paints had additives in them. And the additives were something of an organic pest repellent. They had lye in them, and bees did not do well, along with other insects, of building nests and doing things with something that had lye. They were milk paints. That's what they were referred to. Now, I don't know if they still do this, but you can buy paint additives with organic pest repellents in them. Um, one such product, NBS 30 Paint and Stain Additive, is designed to use for exterior coatings. It will deter and inhibit insects from burrowing through or crawling on exterior coatings, and it is appropriate for use in residential applications whereas, as well as dairy facilities, drive-in restaurants, golf courses, parks, playgrounds, poultry houses, blah, 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 blah. It goes on to like 20 different things. The additive is a soluble or dispersible in commercial oil and water-based paints and stains, and it's dispersible in plain water for a gentle botanical approach to nuisance insect control. Now, I'm not doing a commercial, but there is uh, NBS additive 16-ounce organic pest repellent that you can buy from bugspray.com. To be clear, this isn't an insect killer. It's not intended for control of termites or other wart-boring insects. It's meant as a deterrent. And it seems that you would apply this in a treatment that will last one to two years, and then you can reapply it. I've been to uh, Red Lobster lately. Carpenter bees flying all over the place. I went to another restaurant lately, a big wooden structure. It was like a ranchy kind of restaurant that served ranchy kind of food. Carpenter bees at the entrance pestering the people. If, they, if the restaurant owners knew that, maybe they could spray their stuff down with this. Yeah, okay. So now you know. Haint Blue. Look for it at Sherwin-Williams and other places. There's an article that tipped me on to this from Mike McGrath. Should I paint my porch ceiling blue? From the Gardens Alive website. If you don't know this guy, Mike McGrath, you need to know this guy. 
He produces You Bet Your Garden, public radio. The guy is a savant. I've been listening to him for over a decade in different shows. If you've never heard of this, you need to subscribe to his podcast. If you ever had questions about plants, about bugs, about pollinators, about anything, you know, here he's covering porch ceiling blue. He actually had an article on this. Um, you, you need to give it a listen. He's spectacular. And he's got a great kind of folksy way about him, Mike McGrath. I'll have a link to his show in the show notes. I, I'm not sure what his tie to Gardens Alive is, other than it's a longtime sponsor. But uh, just, just an incredible wealth of knowledge, Mike McGrath. Amazing. I wanted to add one thing. I'll have a link to Haint Blue and Wikipedia and the NBS paint additive for sale, bugspray.com. It's not an affiliate link on my site. It's not a sponsor of mine. I don't do anything for donations or sponsorship or whatever. I pay for everything out of pocket. Uh, the only donations I take is if you want to be kind enough to go send a PayPal through from my homepage, you could do that. But just be clear, I put the NBS paint additive for sale from bugspray.com just so you can go look at the product. I'm not trying to sell it to you. Um, moving along. Roundtable number four, cleaning conundrum. I have this question and it's unique to me and it's not something that I'm trying to be a jerk about. Why are there instructions to have to clean a smoker? Why is that necessary? Am I missing something? I'm kind of lost in the context that I've been using my smoker. Probably have two or three of them. I've gave one away. and But for the most part, they're not clogged and covered with creosote. I see pictures of some people's smokers. And I'm wondering, what the heck are they doing to make it look that way? I have my suspicions. Now, first off, don't get me wrong. Yeah, I just actually, before recording this, went out, got my smoker, took a look at it. It's got creosote built out on the inside, and it's got some patina of creosote to the outside, mostly from the chamber being hot, but it's not encrusted. I've never had to take the bottom, you know, little screen out and clean the hole and whatever. I've been using my smoker for probably a decade, if not longer, and I'm just not clear how people get all this goopy stuff. Now, I'm not in bees all day long, every day burning pine tar, which is what is a result of the pine needles. But uh, I guess there is some credence to keeping your smoker clean. I have one suspicion, and it has to do with more behavioral uh, aspects of things than anything else. Let me explain. There was a period of time when I would take a corn cob, whittle down, and stick it in the end. And when I was done with my smoker, I would take the corn cob, stick it in the hole, and plug the smoker. Lack of oxygen would, re would result in the smoker going out safely, no problem. But I also think, as it's sitting in there smoldering, that is when you start to build the layers of tarnish that ultimately end up being creosote buildup. And it can become kind of a pain, especially if your lid the cone part doesn't fit well with the chamber it's oblong or bent or maybe you stepped on the thing who knows whatever happens it, and if there's any sort of gap it will sometimes build up and that tarnish makes it very difficult at times to pull the lid cone part off of the main chamber 
And in that case, I could see you wanting to clean it or get it sorted out so it's not so sticky because it really sucks to have to try and pull a cone part off when it's, you know, stuck to the, to the chamber and it won't come. And then all of a sudden, when it comes, it comes off very forcefully and all the contents spill out. And if they're hot and burning, well, that's usually not a good recipe for things. I have at times scraped the inside of excess buildup, but coming back to the point, if you clog your smoker when it's done, you'll see that buildup. I changed somewhere along the line. I don't do that anymore. When I'm done with my smoker, I have this routine and I bet you all do. I come back with my smoker and I lay it on its side. I don't close the lid, the hole, and I put it on my barbecue grill. I figure it'll never set anything on fire and it can put itself out naturally. Almost always, also, I pack my smoker all the way through. When I open it the next time, there's always unburnt pine needles at the top, which I think filters any creosote buildup coming through and clogging the top of the filter. If you put just enough in, and when you open the smoker next time to use it, you have black sooty pine needles, maybe that results in a coating. Every coating adds up to clogging at some point. I don't know. I guess what I'm getting to is ultimately I think it has a lot to do with the practice of using the smoker. There's other people who do things where they run their smoker all day and they put it in a bucket in the back of their truck in a pail or some container. So I'm not saying this can't happen. But then again, now if I talk about this, how do you clean a smoker out? I don't have to do it, so I don't really know the answer, but I did look it up, and I stayed in a Holiday Express once. (laughs) The way that I've learned is mostly the best way to do it is try not to clean it off. The stuff is sticky, it's gummy, it's resin, it's tar, it's built on, it's creosote. Creosote's notoriously hard to get off. Universally, when you listen to people who say how to solve this problem, go to B-Source and other places, you'll see people talking about it. The answer is to find a torch. Torch and burn all of the creosote. When you burn the creosote, it doesn't burn it off, but it makes it hard and charred and flaky. And then you could take a soft bristle brush, say a brass brush or something, and brush it off. Now, obviously, you don't want to get in there with a sharp hive tool or screwdriver or something and be scraping the metal down to the point where you're gouging and doing whatever. Or maybe you do. I don't know. Just be gentle about it. But if you tried to warm it up and remove it and didn't burn it to a cinder, you'd have a goopy mess. And it's more difficult. Now, there is another way to go. Uh, Follow the Brits. They use soda ash or something like that. And people in the United States have said dishwasher tablets. Or more specifically, the main ingredient in them is sodium hydroxide. Take your smoker apart, pull a pin, separate it into its pieces, stick it in a bucket of water, and take a dishwasher tablet and put it in there. If you look at some of the other cleaning products, like Super Clean, they also have sodium hydroxide in them, which will tend to eventually break down whatever the crud is, and after a good soak, you can wipe it off, theoretically. I'm sure it's not perfect, but it will work. Again, maybe a brass bristle brush could help the cause. 
and you'll get it squeaky clean. There's another thing to consider. There's always one more. What are you burning? I've recently tried some pellets. Never wanted to use them, but somewhere along the line, someone who got out of beekeeping handed me a bag of pellets. They're the pellets made from extruded sawdust and some sort of glue. I don't know what they used. Some people use stuff that you line an animal cage with. Some people use shavings. I've been talking about and soon to experiment with toilet paper tubes. But one of the more universal and common approaches is rolled up cardboard. Specifically, and some people talk about this, Amazon.com cardboard. Why is this a thing? Because Amazon.com cardboard is made up of recycled cardboard from Amazon and they use some sort of starch for the glue so it's not toxic when you burn it. If you burn XYZ cardboard, you may or may not know what the toxicity is. Now, all smoke is toxic. I don't suggest you inhale it. And there's reports from forest fires. I remember this from fire service. Of burning pine needles create this toxic resin that will contaminate your lungs. So I think pine needles are the best. But a lot of people have switched to rolled up cardboard or other aspects. Now, coming back to the pellets, I tried them lately. I don't like them. They make a mess. Did they work? Sure. They smelled a little different and they burned fine. It seemed to me, it's just me, they burned a little hotter than the straw, than the pine needles. And the other thing is, I just talked about, I light my smoker with a piece of paper. I add some fuel. I puff it till I see flames. I add more fuel. And then I grab generous handfuls and I pack it down to the point where I'm taking my fist and shoving it down in there. And I don't usually run a smoker session long enough to burn all the way through the fuel. Well, the same thing happened with the wood. The next time I came to use the smoker, all those wood pellets disintegrated. They didn't hold together. I don't know if the heat made them dislodge or what. But it became this mushy, messy, yucky thing. And I don't know, when I tried to light it and, you know, you reach down in and grab what's left and pull it out light something and put it back in the stuff fell all over the place i should explain that too i've used my smoker and i've set it aside i come back to it the next time the smoker's full i reach down into the smoker and i pull all the contents out i have a little cup sitting next to where i light my smoker i take the smoker fuel and i put it in the cup i take the dark black charred stuff and i get rid of it from the bottom bottom of the chamber I turn the smoker over and I blow the bellows to the point where I blow all the dust and particles out of the bottom. And then I take a piece of paper and I light it. And I go and I pull the smoker fuel that I just pulled out that's still viable. And I put it in and I use that to get things started. And then I go get fresh pine needles and put it in on top of that. Well, when I had the smoker pellets, they were a mess. They created a problem when I tried to put them in the bucket. So... Even though I still have a half a bag of that stuff left, it'll probably sit in there. (laughs) I don't want to use it. Uh, Live and learn. But you got to try different things. 
And pretty soon I'm going to try the cardboard thing. Now I saw Giancarlo use cardboard to great effect out in Italy and it was amazing. Clean your smoker? Well, if you have to, now you have a couple tips around it. And we've talked about a bunch of things about smoker handling. There's one last thing that comes to brain to say. Sodium hydroxide sounds like methyl ethyl death to me. If you do clean your smoker to a crystal clean, pretty, beautiful thing, make sure you rinse the heck out of it to get that stuff out of there. I don't know what that stuff is when it burns. Or at minimum, when you light your smoker, let it burn for a while and make sure you don't breathe the smoke until whatever it is burns off. And, uh, you know, let that burn off before you start smoking your bees, lest you put that stuff into your colony. Roundtable number five, feisty Russians. I wanted to talk about the Russian bees that I have in the apiary, the first year of experience with them. I got this colony from a fellow beekeeper who installed Russians, and his hive swarmed, and he warned me when I took this colony that the queen was pretty feisty. So I set them up off to the side, and they were aggressive, especially when they got to big numbers. Productive, yes. And this is a... I, I've heard this so many times that I almost feel like it's either repeated as dogma or it's absolutely true, is aggressive hives are great producers. But I'll tell you what, I'm not sure that I want to keep bees in an apiary where I'd like to work my bees in a veil and a t-shirt. I just don't have time for bees that patrol the area and sting you just for walking through. And I find that to be the case when I put these Russians in the apiary. It seems to me that, and this is just personal experience, generally they're okay. Occasionally they will zap you, but they're not chasing you around the yard. Until you open the hive. And then it seems to me that the longer you keep them open, the more pissy they get. Now, I know what I'm doing, and I don't have a lot of reason to be in them. I just go in and check them every once in a while to make sure they're good to go. And, you know, I'm not in there for a long time. I'm in there for a good time. And every time I take some for the team, especially the longer that I have them open, it seems like they're very runny on the comb, they're very nervous, and they're not happy bees. Now, do they ever winter? Yep, they did. Do they make a lot of honey? Sure, they do. But at what cost do you want these aggressive bees in your neighborhood? I, I don't know. Now, this is a one-off thing for me. One Russian hive does not make an experience, and everybody should collectively figure out how this works for them. But, you know, my first foray into this, I'd give it a C from a grade. Now, what I did with this colony this year is thought, well, maybe I'll try and keep it smaller. You know, my sensibility is the bigger it gets, the more aggressive it gets. I split this colony by doing a walkaway split. And then I split the colony that had the queen in half again. The original queen is in a 5 over 5 nuke. Not bad. Not a problem. Seems to be okay. Small population. You know, two five frames, that's ten frames of bees. They don't seem to be so bad when I work them. The other five frames, I split into two queen castles, three apiece, and gave Carnioli and queens. 
the original colony, and this is the interesting experience, ended up being queenless, and they reared their own queen. Now, they're going to mate with the boys in the neighborhood, and are they true Russian stock? No, not likely, but they have Russian background in them. And my curiosity is the hive on pad number eight. Will it be as aggressive as the original queen was? That's an interesting thing for me to know. So far, they've been okay. But they're just building back, right? Because they started from a single box, 10 frames, walk away split, reared their own queen, and now they're building population. So we'll see how this progresses. I'm also interested in knowing when I requeen these bees, if I look at the two, three frame that I supplied queens, one of them accepted the queen, the other one didn't. The queen that I put in there, which was of Carniolian origin, and I know that because it was reared from Carniolian stock and sent uh, instrumental insemination, so I'm not making that up. It was a pure Carniolian descendant. They rejected it. She started to lay, and they immediately built a queen cell. Now the other side, the queen that I put in there, reared from that descendant, accepted the queen so far. She's hanging in. They're almost to the cusp, that, that one side that has a queen, of moving them into a six-frame poly, which is where I'm going to go next. So the whole Russian thing, it's an interesting mix. And this year's experiment is the Saskatraz bees over on pad number one. They're in a six-frame polystyrene nuke, and a second six-frame has been added to them. And I'm feeding them, and we'll grow them to a full colony, and we'll see what their disposition is. The Russian girls are a little feisty. That's my year one report. We'll see how this plays out. I'm willing to let it roll a little further. I do feel a bit annoyed, especially as the hotter weather comes, to have to be out there in a bee suit. I have this really nice veil uh, poncho thing. It covers your chest, it covers your shoulders, and it's a veil. It's not a bee jacket, it's a partial. I love that thing. I could wear a light short sleeve shirt or a long sleeve shirt and that thing and feel fine in the apiary except when the bees are feisty and then they start stinging you on the arms and such. I'd like to get back to that in my apiary but for another season I'm willing to give this a run. If that queen in pad number three, the original queen, is feisty when she builds out again, she gets pinched. I can't expect that she's not going to be, and I haven't pinched her yet because I don't have another queen to do something with her. But, yeah, we'll see what happens. That's more a matter of just not having the time to get to it than the want to get rid of an aggressive queen, which I don't particularly care for. Russian year one, that's my experience. Just thought I'd pass that along. And I need to temper that with your mileage may vary. I'm not saying this is what Russian bees are like. I want everybody to understand that experience is different because every hive is like a child. And I'm just telling you what happened with mine. Uh, if you really want a sense of Russian, go follow the Russian forums. 
follow the people who are working them, get to know some people who are using them, and get a better sense of it, not just follow my sensibility. I'm one in a massive pool of people using Russian bees. And you can't go by my experience. Just had to put that out there so that I don't make this indelible impression upon Russian bees are good, bad, or indifferent, depending on what you think of what I said. So, Topic number one for this episode. This is just Bob, Klaus, and I chatting on the way to a bee meeting to and from. With no further introduction, here we go. Just going to jump right into it. So I figured while we were driving there, we could chat, and I had some things to tell you, and I'm going to talk about them on the show, so I might as well tell you and tell them on the show. That's right. Isn't that a brilliant idea? Yes. So, out to the bee yard, huh? So, out to the bee yard. Please so proceed the, to the highlighted route, and the route guidance will start. I went to uh, check. The first one was on the metal stand. Right. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Two absolutely beautiful, black, dark, amazing-looking queens. Big, right? Big and fat. Big and fat. Big and fat. Beautiful. Nice. Went to check the satellite hive. One side was empty, and the other side had a big, fat, black, beautiful queen. So I pulled the divider out. Mm -hmm. So two for two on the first one, one for two on the second one. I, I can quit right there. That's great. Yeah. Went up to the Saskatraz. Mm-hmm. I switched over the box, gave it another box, and fed it. But I think I told you I found a queen in that. Yes. Yeah. So I went to the back on pad number nine. Two for two. <laughs> cool. Looking great. That's great. Beautiful. Beautiful queens. <laughs> then I went to pad number ten. And I have to ask you if you remember, did we did we put two or one in that box? Do you remember? Jeez, no, my head just spins. I see so many bees. Well, there was one on one side, and the other side the hive was empty. So I pulled the divider out, put them all together. There were a handful of bees on the far side, and went up to the front hive, which is the Russian hive. Mm-hmm. I told you the other day the front front hive, the one that faces forward, yeah, was bearding and there was a full colony hanging off the front of the thing. At the end of the road, when I opened it up, there was nothing in that side. They must have swarmed, so that might be what's in my swarm trap. Oh, okay. On the other side, I found brood, and it looks like a queen pattern. But I looked through that box over and over, and I could not find a queen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think that I'm one for two on that one. So two, two, no, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Seven of the ten. That is, that's great. It's pretty darn good. That's what it should be, right? Yeah. 70, 80 percent? Yeah. Yeah, right there. So it, it, it so it begs the question then. Yeah. Those were puny little cells. And they're beautiful looking queens. So full blown. What does that mean? I don't know. We didn't see any excess jelly in there. I guess it, what it really goes to show is, sure, you want it. You want to be right turn. Give more than they absolutely need, but is it required? Probably not. 
No. You know, it in, seems like in nature they're not in a uh, cell builder that's got a high density of uh, nurse bees. They've got their normal bees, and yeah. they make nice fat queens. I think the other part of it is, is she well mated, right? So if she gets well mated, and the weather's been decent, they're all mated. I see, I see brooding all the ones that were active. Yeah, they're laying already. Now the one queen, the one on nine or ten, there was uh, she was yellow looking. She yeah. did not oh, look yeah. black. That's I'm glad you said that. I had one too. The first one I looked at was pretty yellow, and I went, yeah. mm, "That's from that uh, carniolan." Yeah, yellow tree. Yeah, emerged. And then uh, the other one was a little darker, almost tigery, but but pretty dark. <clears throat> I think I'm going to find the same success up at uh, Deer Path because I think I told you they were all bringing in pollen. Pollen. Yeah. So that'll be good. So welcome to the program. How long has it been? It's been a while. And I, and I have to remark, you sound different. <laughs> yeah, how do you <laughs> For like, those that are listening, you this like, is the new Bob. You like my new voice, huh? Yeah. Yeah, so I had a little work done on one of my vocal cords that wasn't working too well. And uh, it helped a lot. You, you sound a little, little more deeper voice and a little more forceful not so flat. Yeah. Flat, very nice. Yeah, I was pretty pleased with the results. So, still getting used to it, how to use it. <laughs> yeah. Well, tonight you're going to try it out. So, it's Thursday night. Yeah. We're heading to the Raritan Valley Beekeepers Association meeting. And uh, there's a special presenter that we're going to see. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> Anybody I know? Yeah. I think you're pretty close to him. <laughs> yeah, so... I'm going to uh, be presenting tonight. <clears throat> I put a little presentation together on apitherapy. And not that I, by, I'm a, uh, an expert by any means on apitherapy, but I was asked by uh, Landy Simone a few months back if I would present to Essex County. And she said, you know, what do you want to talk about? And, you know, I kept thinking about it, and it's like, well, we talk about varroa and treatments, we talk about spring management, we talk about swarm control. It's the same stuff over and over. Who wants right. to hear that? Who right. wants to do that? I agree. So uh, I started looking around, and I thought, you know what? I don't know a whole lot about apitherapy. I don't know probably almost nothing, but I can research it and at least be able to give people a, an overview. So that's what I did. I, uh, I put together a short presentation. I don't think it's going to be much over a half hour, maybe 40 minutes. Um, but the point of the, the presentation is it's not just about bee venom therapy. It's about all the products of the hive. And uh, I, I think there's a couple things in there that are going to surprise you, too. That's why I came. I want to hear this. That surprised me. Things yeah. that I didn't think of. Uh, products of the hive that are used, say, in the Far East or uh, in Eastern Europe. So uh, I think people will learn a, th a thing or two, and I think they'll enjoy it. So we'll see how it goes. This is uh, beyond the field meetings that we've just had. This is the first like, live in-person 
regular meeting that yeah. you've been to since COVID started. You know, it's really kind of, I've been looking forward to just have that, that camaraderie again, right? Because our club is pretty um, cautious when it comes to COVID, yeah. and, and I don't blame them. So we haven't really been meeting in person a lot. We haven't been meeting at all indoors. We've had a couple of outdoor meetings. But uh, but Raritan Valley, they, they've been meeting pretty regularly for the last couple of months. So uh, I'm, I'm anxious to talk bees with other beekeepers. So we had a meeting this past weekend, field meeting for Northwest, and I wanted to talk to you about... In half of a mile. Recently, uh, on the show, I talked about the failures of the package, its supersedure and all that. Yeah. And you said the package you guys put in there is no, no good? We couldn't find a queen. I went in there with... Um, what was her name? <laughs> the one who put the package in. Laura. Laura. You know, Laura put the package in, and I went through it with her, and we couldn't really see any evidence of a queen. So you're going to take your queen and put it in there, one of the ones we did? Yeah. I'm I'm going to go check them a second time. Yeah. Because it was another one that we went in that I didn't see a whole lot of brood, or really any young brood, and I didn't, we didn't find a queen. So, uh, but yeah, I I want to get us up to at least five hives with the... uh, Valley Crest Farm. I think I might go up there this weekend and drop a couple honey boxes on my yeah. double deep there because the thing is from floor to ceiling. But you know, overall, we had all those people who saw packages that were part of the mentoring program, and I think I only got one phone call from someone who said their queen superseded. So I want to think that while ours didn't turn out well for the club, you know, the the general consensus is it wasn't very noisy this year, my yeah. thought. Yeah. Oh, that's good. So last night we had a mentoring meeting, and you were kind enough to dial in and watch along, and you were also seeing some of the mentoring stuff. It's been a small crowd this year, but I think the program, from a delivery standpoint, I'm testing all the materials and... You know, it's you could sit there in your own little vacuum and write stuff, but it's not till you put it to work until you see how it works. And I'm I'm pretty happy with how it's going so far. Yeah, well, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of questions at the end, and, and that means one of two things, right? It means either they weren't following it and they were just out. completely lost, <laughs> or it was presented in such a way that they got it, they followed right along with it, and there were no questions. So. I think it's the latter, just because of the, the format that you're using and how simple and logical it is yeah. and concise. I, I really did, you know, go through the program for the last couple of years, and I've really kept it simple. One of the things I was trying to do, and this is a question I have for you, since you had to sit through it all, do you think other clubs could pick up those slides and run them? Or, you know, there's not... How do we say this? Yeah, it's very Jersey specific, right? Because we're from Jersey and that's mm-hmm. what we're going to talk about. Yeah. But I think conceptually, most of the stuff applies no matter where you go, don't you believe? That it would work if somebody else said, go watch these videos? Yeah, because, yes, because the timing might vary, but concepts are all the same. Yeah. And it's, again, it's a logical format of what do you need to know now? What do you need to know next? What do you need to know after that? So he just kind of builds on 
what you learned before. So, so we just made all these queen castles, and we have two and three frame queen castles, and the listener wrote in and asked me, how do you take a queen castle all the way to the finish? So what's your process? So I think, I think that's the beauty of a queen castle, is you can take the dividers out, right? So normally what I do, because I don't get 100% take, say you get three out of four, is just take the, the divider out. I use two frame uh, queen castles. So now you've got four. That next step from there is into a nuke, right? A five frame nuke. And just go from there. Because we're in the middle of the flow, so it's not like I feel like I've got to feed them. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's pretty organic growth. So I, I have the polystyrene six-frame right. nucleus. Straight ahead. And, and you just heard me say down. some of them are three and three, and they got queens on both sides, and some of them have a queen on one side, none on the other. But like you, I have a couple extra polystyrene boxes. If so I'll take a three out left turn and I'll put the three into a six mm-hmm. and I'll let it grow to six. And then I'll put another six over top of it because I have spare boxes. Yep. And one of the things that I think you have this, I have two 10 frame boxes sitting in the back of my apiary with capped honey on them. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. So there's 20 frames that I can distribute. So, you know, for me to take these, and these were from dead outs or things that I Next saved left. off. And then uh, right turn. No, the only thing I wouldn't do in, unless I did it right now, is put them on foundation. Yeah. Yeah. Because when the nectar flow stops come mid-June, you know, it starts to taper off. And they're building new bees. I mean, I don't know. They, they may or may not draw comb. It's been a mixed bag. So one of the key things is this year I have as much drawn comb as I need to build all these colonies out, I hope. Yeah, I've been trying to get them to draw comb. You know, I threw out a, over 100 frames yeah. last year. And uh, they haven't really been going at it whole hog. They're drawing some of it, but it's not, not like I would expect at this time of year being in the middle of the flow but like you I I have boxes of uh, capped honey and so what I've been doing is as my colonies are growing I just use those frames of honey and build them up to a deep or two two five frames actually I put a third box on my nukes that I've been using as brood factories I uh almost can't keep up with them in, in terms of weakening them so that they don't swarm. You know, taking brood frames. I've, I've taken brood frames out of all of them on a couple of occasions and they're still, they were still just bursting at the steam. That seems with two boxes. So I put a third box on and that should help for a while but they're all ready to go into it deep. You know, so I had an interesting uh, situation this week. I have a hive on my uh, patio in the back, and, and it overwintered. It's been there for two years now. Never had an issue with it. Uh, I go out last week, and I check it for a queen, because I put a virgin queen in it. I think I told you. I tried that method, and it worked. Beautiful queen in there. But, boy, the bees were all over me. They were nasty. Oh, really? Maybe had, they weren't happy with what was going on. I had gloves on. Well, my... 
my first thought was, well, maybe they were queenless, right? Yeah. But then about, I, God, maybe two hours later, I went out to fill the bird feeder, which is right is behind the hive, probably about six, seven feet away. I go to the bird feeder, and I am getting lit up. <laughs> I, I got stung, Kevin, at least. Wow. Close to a dozen times, probably, in my head. And, uh, you know, God pinched every bee that got me, but they all got me. And uh, this is what I always miss this turn. Yeah. Yeah. I pointed. Otherwise, you would have drove right by it. it again. So, um, so anyway, I got lit up. Your destination and I, ahead on the right. Okay. I, again, I'm trying to figure out what is it. I've got a new queen in there, a different queen, so... Maybe it's just they need to... Maybe they have no brood, they're unhappy. Yeah, there was a little bit of brood, but anyway. So uh, then I had uh, Annalise, you know, Annie, the Girl Scout, that I helped. She she came over, she was going to treat my uh, yard for ticks, and uh, unfortunately I had to leave, so she was there by herself. Well, normally she walks the yard, so she walks the yard, and she calls me up, and she goes, Bob... You have, you, have, you have a hive that's really nasty? I said, yeah, which one? The one on the, on the back? I said, yeah, I guess I should have told you about it. I said, but, uh, yeah, they, they, there's something going on with them. So, anyway, make, again, another long story short. So, today, I go out, and we have a bird's nest that's on our front porch. It's on one of the columns. And uh, there was a you know bird nesting there, and it laid a few eggs, and all of a sudden the bird is gone. I go out two hours later today, Kevin, today, and the nest is on the ground. And I look over; I have supers on my front porch, just you know spares, and somebody had been eating my supers. So I know I've seen raccoons on my back patio yeah. twice. Maybe they're poking at your hog. I've got a raccoon problem now. Yeah, that's and interesting. That's what I thought. I said, you know what? If they are at the bird feeder, yeah. eating the seed off the ground, the and bothering the bees, yeah. the, the bees are that. So that's rather interesting. So I, st- I am going to stop feeding the birds for a while, and I may even have somebody come out and remove these guys. Because I just. Uh, Got to put up cameras so you know. Yeah, yeah, yep. I got myself a calendar, Bob. Do you have one of these from this year? I actually it's at Edith's house. I I don't know why I missed a. I have a copy of that calendar every year since they've made it. I was disappointed that this year I didn't get to get one. So. I have one from every year except 2020. Oh, really? And I wanted a, I Stan had them, but he gave them all away. I had a couple of uh, certain years, mm-hmm. and I gave them to new people and said, just read the back. Uh, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. gave them away. So it's post-meeting. That was a good meeting, Bob. Well done. Thank you. Great presentation. They're a good club. I, I like... Uh, going to Valley. I, I do too. They're, they're friendly. They're nice people. The, I don't know if I told you, Keith went to pick up a swarm this week. Did you know Oh, that? really, Keith? So somebody called. Uh-huh. And, so how do I say this without 
sounding goofy about it. Karina just inadvertently put a message out saying, if you see any swarms, let us know. Uh-huh. She's trying to get calls from all over the place. <laughs> so apparently this guy that was talking to me there tonight is the guy that they went to see. He called and oh. said, I had a swarm. And they said, well, we can't come get it right now, whatever. He said, you know what? I'll put the swarm in a box and you come when you can. And so they brought their box and he transferred it out. And Keith was telling me today, you know, this is so funny. I said to the guy, uh, you know, this is a first for them. They're, they're learning their way through different things. And this is probably equivalent to year two. They're sophomores, mm-hmm. so to speak. Because he looked at me like, you know, I had to. He said, well, you did really well when they did it. You did a good job. But Keith called me today and said, well, what do I do next with this? <laughs> and I said, you know, you're like, you've got a private mentor in me. <laughs> right? I've, every day he calls me with different questions and it's, it's fun. It's fun to listen to him. And that was really nice of that guy to collect it for. Wasn't that nice? Yes. That's, and so that's the point of yeah. coming back to the people. Beekeepers are amazing people. They're just so much fun to be around. I think I, I told you I got a call right before we left tonight uh, from a fellow. He had a swarm. He wanted to know if I wanted to come and get it three feet off the ground. And I told him, unfortunately, I couldn't come. So uh, I, I told him to give it to somebody else. But it's been that kind of year. Yeah. It, you know, last year I thought it was amazing. And this year... It's not been too shabby. And I said this to you, you know this already, but I'll say it for the record. The storm moved into my storm trap box. <laughs> for what year, number five or I, six? I, think this is is that? No, I really think this is number six. Unbelievable. I have to go back and look at the year that we made those that winter. Yeah. Because the following year, the bees moved in, and they've moved in every year since. So I'm... I'm it's such a strange thing to keep there, but... So I'm watching uh, it, it on the computer, and uh, I, I can see immediately from the angle where it is. Yeah, you knew. I said, oh, my... I, I went right over to my yeah, wife. Yeah, when I called to tell you, you're like, you knew it already. I went right over to my wife. I said, Kathy, you're not going to believe this. <laughs> you're not going to believe this. Yeah, I love that thing. You know, and here I, I kill myself by carrying the damn thing up a ladder, tie it to a tree. <laughs> it's like, just leave it on the garage floor. They're yeah. moving. So. I think the key, just so everybody hears this, is every year I clean my wax up from my frames that I clean up and I leave them mm-hmm. in bags mm-hmm. and the bags are sitting right there next to the hive okay. so they smell the wax and the propolis and all that stuff that was freshly harvested every spring yeah. and it draws them to the box and the box is the perfect size and the box is perfect so that's that probably is a little bit of the secret sauce just to, mm-hmm. to disclose yeah <clears throat> So that's a good reason to, you know, think about uh, clean up your old comb or whatever. Just put a little pot of it next to a swarm trap. Leave it there. The bees will smell it as soon as it gets warm. But it's funny. It's always the same time. It's a little later. For whatever reason, it's not the first. It's always sometime mid-May or early June. Maybe it's when all the good spots are taken. (laughs) Could be. Who knows? Who knows? Is right. But, you know, I knew it was coming because I could see them scouting the box. Mm-hmm. They, they kept 
wander around in it. Yeah. That's a fun process to watch, actually. At first, you see a bee or two, and, and the next day, it's a half a dozen, and, and next thing you know, they're coming and going. You go, hmm, I think they moved in. There's times when there's so much activity that I sometimes pick the roof off the thing just to see if there's actually a colony inside. Yeah. And that's when you know you're getting close. So, you know, the other side of our house, we have all those ferns that grow. Mm, right. And there's a small little brick patio there, and I put a hive there this year. They could care less. Sprayed it with Swarm Commander. Really. Just have not found that thing at all. Mm-hmm. Which is probably not that bad because... I know now that we talked about all the queens that came through. Yeah, I'm going to need comb, and there's 10 frames of comb ready to go there. Yeah. So, you know, I went through uh, my hive stack in the garage the other day, labeled mm-hmm. everything, comb, no comb. And I'm wondering uh, if I should start rotating in. I still have two or three. There's a deer right here. You're good. Um two or three boxes of Kelly F frames ready to go. Yeah. And I'm wondering if I should start putting them in. You know, it's interesting every time, because I wrote Kelly F frame on top of the thing, mm-hmm. um, on top of the bar. As I go through, I say, oh, there's a foundationless frame, Kelly F, right there. And they're all through my hives. I'm surprised. I probably have 20 to 30 of them deployed. Mm-hmm. Do you have them? You bought them when you yeah, first. Oh yeah, I have them. I have some of those, and I have some that. Uh, Do you have any left? Wedge, wedge top. Yeah, I bought a hundred over the winter. Oh yeah, you were showing me. Yeah, I made a hundred of them. I just put some more in. Actually, put about uh, maybe twenty or thirty in because now's the time. This is when they're going to draw them. Yeah, it's almost getting late. Yeah, well, you know, I I put them mostly in. Uh, in nuke boxes, because the nukes, they just seem to keep drawing. But yeah, it was funny when she sent us uh, the picture of Sam Ramsey. You know who this is? Yeah. And I was like, and I just think back, because we saw him one of the first times. The uh, first time he presented his data yeah. to yeah. New Jersey. And and it was in a really small, like, little classroom. I remember being, like, right up in front with him. And, and our mouths were, like, dropping, like, wow, look at this guy. Look at this. Look at this. Yeah, where were we were in a, that was the meeting with Jim too, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, where was that? It was in Pennsylvania, I think. Was it had to be? Somewhere. No, that wouldn't make sense. It no. was a Jersey meeting, wasn't it? I don't remember. I'm pretty sure it was a Jersey meeting. I remember. It's gonna sound stupid. Someone came to the meeting and they were deathly ill. Deathly ill, sick for the week before. And you remember that? And we all were sick afterwards. Uh, we got stomach bug afterwards. Uh, this person was saying, "Oh, I've been sick all week with a stomach bug," and then like seven or eight of us had like massive food poisoning, stomach bugs, illness. Mm-hmm. I almost died after that meeting. That's what I remember. About that meeting. Yeah. <laughs> Such a great memory. <laughs> That's quite a trip that Gene is on. Yeah, with it's Pettis, right? Isn't it Jamie, Jamie Ellis? Or Jamie Ellis, sorry. Yeah. Wrong guy. And I think uh, Cameron yeah. Jack is with them. Cameron Jack is going to be there. And so who happens to be there but Sam, Sam Ramsey. Ramsey? Well, we were just in Thailand and we bumped bumped into. It was funny. 
because he's playing to a whole uh, table of undergrads. Yeah. But what an opportunity. For I'm curious to hear what, the, you know, he's been working on trophy laylocks over there for a long time. I'm yeah. fascinated to hear what he's, what's going on with that. Just like we need that, like a hole in the head. If that mic comes over and maybe Trophy Laylocks will kill Veromites, wouldn't it be a one-two punch? We can't have another setback like that. Yeah. Like the introduction of Veromites. Uh, We're just barely crawling our way out of it. I've checked a lot of uh, drone brood from between the boxes and and things I'm not. I haven't seen. I don't think a single mite. I, I'm not seeing mites either. Yet this no, year, it, it may just be early. Yeah, it could be. Or, or maybe you know we're finally developed some decent Jersey stock that kind of keeps them in control. Yeah, and I'm not saying you got that. There's a magic bee completely resistant, but have you noticed an overabundance of drones in our hives this year? I've seen a lot of drones. I don't, what is that about? More than, I, I wonder, this is what I was thinking. Do you think it has to do with the cold, rainy, clammy spring we've had? I think it'd be more likely that it's related to all these swarms, right? You're not gonna, they're not going to cast a swarm unless they've got lots of drones. So if you're, you've got a season where you're casting all these swarms, you're going to see a lot of drones too. Are you seeing hot beetles in your colonies? No, no. Knock on wood, <laughs> not yet. I'm just seeing a small little, you know, couple here, couple there. Yeah. Have I, you had any ants in your colony? Yes. I've had the little ants. Yeah. Looking for water ants. Same here. Yep. I've had those. Sorry. Yeah, I've seen ants, uh, but not not enough to be a nuisance. Just no. Just they're just a pain in the butt. The bees, the bees take care of them. Yeah, they keep them at bay. You do. I'm running out of equipment, Bob. <laughs> I am I, I, you know, I was wondering to the point of all these queens we reared, I don't know what I'm going to put them in. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I'm running out of nuke boxes, so I'm going to have to put some of them in some deeps. I've actually started making up a nuke for the fairs. Just yeah. because I, I needed the box. I... What's funny is I've been giving equipment away here and there yeah. to people getting started. You know, yeah. you need a box here, take this, get started, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm gonna have to build boxes and frames in order to house all this stuff we built. It's crazy. I, I really, I, I want to cut back, but I'm having like, for example, I have three top bar hives. I'm saying, you know what? One of the queens is a real dud. She just barely made it through the winter. I've fattened her up, equalized her, put some more bees in, and she just hasn't taken off. Yeah. So she's a dud, so I should just get rid of her. You don't ever do that, though. But I don't. <laughs> and uh, I still have the dud that I brought home from Diana. What's funny is I, she's a little peanut of a queen. And she had a little patch of brood at Diana's house. I brought her home. I threw some extra bees in with her. I put her in. And she actually stopped laying completely. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, I was curious. So, you know, you told me you did that. I thought maybe, you know, if I, I gave... I said, you put her in a box. I'll see what she does, yeah, right? If I gave, I figure if I gave her the workers, 
you know, maybe she dropped yeah. a little bit, but she actually went the other way. So I, I, I was going to say that tonight as, as one of the comments, which is, it's, it's not, it doesn't pay, pay to nurse no. one of those kinds of bees along. Yeah. You, you got to bite the bullet and, you know, there's good queens and there's bad queens. And when you have a bad queen, she's not going to turn into a good queen, period. So no matter what you do... I think maybe once or twice I've taken a queen that, for whatever reason, didn't have a good start and yeah. supported her, and yeah. she blew up. Once or twice in all the years we've been yeah. done. Yeah. Most of the time, because I really didn't expect you to tell me that. But you had the equipment. Remember, we were talking yeah. about this, and I said, just put her in here and see what happens. Yeah. Right? And it goes to prove what we... This is why we know this stuff. It's because we take it's a me, crappy, yeah. runty queen, yeah. put her in a box, and see what happens. It's not for the sake of I don't want to kill her. Right. It's what do you think is going to happen? Let's find out, right? Yeah. Yeah. My RA box is finally building the bottom box. So that hive, if you remember last year when we had the flood, mm -hmm. I had the feeder on the hive, and the water collected in the feeder and it overflowed the feeder oh, and ran right. down through the hive. That's right. And it wrecked all the comb. The swarm moved in first thing this year, and they had to rebuild all the comb. The comb was, you ever have the comb where it's wrecked and it's papery? You touch it and it just disintegrates? Yeah, yeah. It's not really comb. I don't know what happened to it. You so had some beautiful comb in that It was gorgeous. Too. Well, they rebuilt it all in the top two boxes, and I looked in there yesterday, and they're festooning and they're building the bottom box out so my hope is before july that i could put another one or two boxes how's your worry doing i haven't been in it yet just humming along so i it looks like it's humming along what's really taking off for me is the laying side so I, I have not looked at my laying side i think i told you my lanes didn't make it through the winter yeah. and when i went in there it was all from halfway, so 10 frames were all cross-combed, full of honeycomb, but completely cross-combed. So I, I pulled it all out, I chopped all the comb away, I crushed and strained some of it. Anyway, I put it back in, and I put a, a queen in, and Kevin, they repaired that comb. Oh, yeah? I've got, like, at least 15 beautifully drawn combs in and there they, now. And they did it right this time? Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So, uh, so I'm really pleased with that. But that, that was a good queen. She, I took her out of my patio hive because I went in and there were swarm cells. So I said, okay, got to do something. I took her, I put her in the lay-ins, and she's just taken off. Well, my, my lay-ins hive and my top bar hive, are descendants of your yellow queen. Uh -huh. And they're doing great. They're really yeah. doing well. So. Yeah, those, those queens are around. Um, I gave one to, that, those, those, yeah, that's the queen that Butch has from that yellow queen. Yeah. And so does um, the other guy from the farm. He called me the other day. Oh, look at this. He had a swarm. <laughs> he calls me and says, Bob, I got a swarm. He says, I've watched you. I think I know what to do. <laughs> I called him back, and he said, well, yeah, I went out. I watched another. I watched the YouTube video, and then I went and captured it. What, what happened to Paxton Hill? Did they get recovered? Um, she had to buy a new queen. She bought yeah. some new queens okay. from the stand. So, uh, 
Yeah. Nope, if, she, if you go out there someday, let me know. I'll with you. She killed him. Yeah, it should be nice now, too. Yeah. These things are in bloom. Up until this point, it's been pretty... That's why I said what I said tonight about the Formic Pro, because I was afraid that guy was going to yeah. make his colony. It's a weird time to put it in when the colony growth is going on. Yeah, it is. It is. I wasn't going to say anything. He's doing a single pad, so it should be okay, right? I think so. And again, as long as you follow the, the directions, right? You give well, that's what I said. Follow the, the directions. Space and, and I think keeping the entrance wide open is really important, too. Yeah. So if you do those things, you should be all right. Yeah, I agree. But, but you know, he was talking about it was going to be... Well, my concern was he was going to put it in this weekend. Yeah. And it's going to be 80, 90 degrees, degrees on Saturday. So yeah, Right off the bat. All right, well, thanks for a fun evening there, Mr. Kloss. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Yep. Nice job on the presentation. Thank you very much. We'll see you. Later. Be good. Well, it's customary to finish off with a liquid hype report, but first thing I'm going to say is thanks to Bob for putting up with me on these things. I like our little chats, and you can tell we bounce all over the place as to whatever is top of mind. It's just cool to forget all that's going on in the world and connect on bees. It should be known that we talk about other things, and for the most part, I slice that stuff out. Uh, I think our talks about COVID and Ukraine and whatever, you don't care to hear us weigh in on stuff like that. You're here to hear about bees. So, to the point, local hive report, 21 colonies in boxes around the apiary and such. They're in various states. Some are in size of five-frame nukes. Some are six-frame nukes. Some are larger. Others are full-size colonies. I'll start with the Waray hive. It's out in front of my apiary. Unlike what I said in that piece, it's abated a bit. I'm not sure why they just won't build and I'm wondering if I need to make a change, and I have a thought in looking at that yesterday. Two boxes are set above an empty box, which is customary for Ware. You're supposed to load from the bottom. In between the empty box on the bottom and the two boxes that are chock full of bees, there's a shim. The shim has a hole in it, and the bees have been exiting the hole in the shim, not the bottom board. One, I think I need to pull the shim out if I were really going to do it right. So the bees would come through the bottom board and through the bottom box and see that as space. But I'm wondering if I should take a Langstroth approach, pull that box, put the bees down on the entrance, and put the box above them and see if they'll build it out. I don't know. You know, I can't, can't say that I'm very good at this Waray hive. It's still one of those things that somewhat befuddles me and I'm learning. And I'm still thinking through that. I might have to go consult my Waré book and see if there's any words of wisdom. I haven't been feeding them. I know you should. But my feeder was a no-go. And it's on my to-do list to figure out how to build a better feeder. Uh, I gotta get to that. I have pretty much the rest of June before the dearth comes in July. So This week I moved two captured swarms to Valleycrest. I now have three colonies there. In the piece, I talked about adding honey supers to the box. Well, it was too late. The big hive there that was Queen Wright looks like it either swarmed or is on the verge of swarming. When I went through it on a quick inspection, I found some queen cells. Not only were they queen cups, but they were cells and they were on the verge of being built out. They weren't capped yet. I didn't find anything. Put a pin in that. Go to the other colony. 
that was established from doing the walk-away split earlier. It never queened itself, even though it had brood in all stages. I do not see that it built a queen. Now, what I found there is frames that had that opening. You know the look. They build the honey around the outside and the pollen, and they leave the center for a queen. And if there's a queen in there, she should be laying, but sometimes she never gets to it. They prep it, and it never happens. As an insurance policy, I went in the big colony, which was showing queen cells, underway, and I pulled that frame, making sure that I didn't take the queen, and I put it over in the other box. If they need a queen, they will have one. If they don't need a queen, they'll tear those queen cells down. Now, is it possible that the first box, the queen left, and I just took the queen cells? Yeah, maybe. I'm playing a little loose and fast with these, but I suspect it's okay. If they had those queen cells there, my guess is if I'd have went deeper in the box, I'd have found some more. As to the big colony, I put honey supers on them because they're ready to make honey. And so the other thing, working with the two colonies that were there, put that aside, I added two new boxes over there. Uh, both swarms that I captured from my property are there in 10 frame deeps. That field is about to explode. All the fauna is up about mid-thigh, and you could just see the wildflowers ready to break. So I think it's in a good place there. Next thing I want to talk about is my 10 frame polystyrene and just relate some story. I went to New Egypt Speedway Tuesday night for the short track super series. Is that important? No, but I came home at one o'clock in the morning when I closed the garage and stand in the still of the night. I could hear bees buzzing, almost like a swarm. I grabbed a flashlight and quickly ran up into the apiary to see what was going on. And on the 10 frame polystyrene hive, the entire face from the roof to the floor and hanging off the bottom were 10 pounds of bees. Incredible, like four, five inches deep. The hive, I guess, was bearding in the extreme. And it just showed me how many bees they have in that box. Now it's two 10 frame deeps and two honey supers on top. And I think, given the mass of the population and the fact that they didn't swarm, which was good, did my swarm prevention on that, I probably want to add more honey supers. And I think I'm going to do that over in Emory Shim. One of the things I noticed about this colony is they're always using the bottom entrance. Even though they have a hole in the top, I have a bottom board with a notch, they don't use it. I think if I put an Emory Shim in between the two honey supers that are on there and the two that I'm going to put on the top, I get the bees to come through the top entrance. We'll see how that works out, but that colony is going to make four boxes of honey pretty easily. I recently split a three-frame, three-frame queen castle into two six-frames, moving three frames into a new box and adding comb. As we discussed, this is how I am expanding these colonies. Uh, last year, a beekeeper that I was mentoring had moved to Canada and sold all her stuff. She couldn't take bees north across the border. I picked up some six frames in the exchange and thought maybe that was a mistake. But this year, given all the colonies that we're trying to bring up, I'm happy to have the equipment. 
I was wondering if I would ever get the opportunity to actually use it all. And now I've not only used most of it, I'm making more. There was two or three boxes that were never built. I just painted them. And all the boxes that were off color, she had a yellow one and a blue one. I painted them. They all match my type A personality, light gray and dark gray motif that I have for all my polystyrene hives in the yard. So it's really serendipity that I ended up with all these boxes because fortunately for all the success we've had in queen rearing, I have something to put them in. Now while upstairs the other night, not feeling really well, just thinking about these boxes that I'm painting, it dawned on me that the eight frame polystyrene hives that I built last year, which actually hold nine in the box, nine frames, they would be a perfect progression. I think I can get these six frame polystyrene hives to a six over six over six, which is 18 frames. And then the 18 frames can transfer into the three eight frame polystyrene nukes for over winter. Now don't think about the math, it'll make your head explode, but that's just serendipitous as to how that worked out. And I kind of like that the way it worked out. As to the rest of the apiary, I did an inspection the other day, see how things are progressing. All of the smaller highs, five and six frame boxes that are growing need another box on top. And when I come out from under this cold, I got to go out and add some equipment. The other full size colonies have honey supers on them, as you've just heard, and they're doing great. All in all, things are humming right along. And like all of the years before, spring is a wonderful time of year. And we'll just have to watch everything as it progresses and heads into June. Check. All done. Things are going pretty well. We'll just keep plowing through the year. So given my current state, I am ready to check the box and get out of here. I just wanted to say one thing. EAS, registration is open. Go ahead, register. It's going to be a spectacular event this year in New York. Cornell University, you couldn't get a better place to host a conference. Bob Kloss is speaking. I'm speaking. I am so looking forward to that. Uh, going to be a great time in August. Good time to be up there. Register. Eastern Apiculture Society. Go take a peek. Like our beloved bees, when beekeepers go together, they can accomplish great things. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll catch you next time on the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast.